Bible passage is from Mark 5, 21 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Uh, it's been an adventurous morning, and I appreciate everyone's uh, hard work. And um, I think uh, as, as our hearts are warmed and gathered to uh, worship God, um, you'll see uh, through all uh, of our efforts. Um, we're in the middle of our first uh, sermon series of 2021. It is based on the first of three virtues that are found in our church key verses. Uh, I'm trying to devote one sermon series for each virtue to help us better understand and inc incorporate pro Paul's uh, phraseology. So our key verses uh, from 1 Thessalonians. Uh, so it's work produced by faith, labor prompted by love and endurance inspired uh, by hope in Christ. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at Apostle James's rendering of faith in works. We interpreted his writing to not be in violation of Paul's uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone. Rather, James is emphasizing that real faith produces real works. Uh, real faith gives evidence that something has actually happened in the heart and is evident in the hands. Uh, or more simply, the outside shows the inside. Uh, today, we look at a double encounter found in several Gospels. The Markan version juxtaposes Jesus' conversation uh, or interaction with Jairus, a synagogue ruler, 
around the healing of a bleeding woman. Right? The passage is full of references to faith and what faith can accomplish. The title I wanted to offer is, uh, today is Faith Works, paren verb intransitive. <laughs> I tried to be a little cutesy with the grammatical form of the word works. Uh, the word, it can, of course, be either a noun or a verb. Last Sunday, we treated it as a noun. Uh, today, it's more of a verb. Uh, intransitive means that it doesn't need an object to act upon. Remember that from grade school. Um, and, you know, Paul in First Thessalonians treats work as um, a, a noun, right? Faith produced, uh, a work produced by faith. But here in today's text, I like the idea of action and change. Faith works. It does something. It's operative. It can achieve an outcome. It can change oneself. It can change the people and things in its environment. There's a sense of development and motion in the passage. Uh, these verses give me a sense of extending out from the faith practitioner, if you will, to others who are considering faith or struggling with faith or needing boosting uh, for their faith. Uh, a couple of metaphors from nature that might help illustrate this principle is the ripple effect you get when, uh, say, in a pond, when you drop a pebble or an object, uh, a rock, and when it's thrown in, the heavier the object, the greater the ripple effect. Likewise, a strong earthquake radiates out from the epicenter and can shake or hurtle the ground to great destruction or odd responses. So I want to analogize the bleeding woman's faith in particular, her rudimentary faith as a pebble, a real solid pebble that, or a tectonic plate shift which radiates out to Jairus and to others uh, in the narrative. Right? Um, and I want to, uh, that these changes, these outward workings demonstrate, uh, a la my title, that faith works. So let's explore the bleeding woman's faith by utilizing the following questions. What was her condition? What was the state of her faith? What obstacle uh, did her faith have to overcome? How did her faith change her? How did her faith impact others? Right? So I'm going to just take it uh, each question at a time. What was her condition? Uh, the exact nature of her bleeding condition is unknown. Most interpreters infer that it was some kind of chronic condition, probably uh, or possibly related to menorrhagia. Um, excuse me, I'm going to turn off my Zoom here. On that, just in case. Getting feedback. Okay. Um, possibly related to menorrhagia. She had uh, been suffering for 12 years. Doctors could do nothing but exacerbate her suffering and drain her financial resources. Uh, she visited one doctor after another, hoping that some new technique or drug might alleviate her torment. And in those days, some doctors were notorious for their crazy contraptions and silly elixirs, but her condition only worsened. Each time must have been a disappointment, made bitter, uh, made even more bitter. Uh, chronic diseases such as these may be among the worst things to experience. In modern times, people are not only prescribed palliative medicine, but they are regularly offered antidepressants because it is so difficult to cope with such ailments on a long-term basis. Moreover, socially speaking, uh, this bleeding problem would have made her ritually unclean and would have forced her to be separated from contact with people, right? <laughs> Social distance uh, in that sense. Uh, the woman is nameless because society had probably forgotten about her. Now, spiritually, she's cut off as well. She's unfit to enter a synagogue, let alone the temple. Childbearing marriage, not options for her. 
Imagine the psychological toll this took upon her. Uh, what was the state of her faith? You know, this was a condition. What was her faith like? We're not exactly sure either how much she knew about Jesus. Verse 27 indicates that when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd. At least he was certainly the focus of whatever faith she possessed. She somehow deduced that he alone held out the possibility of her healing, and she trusted uh, in his power enough that she believed that mere contact with Jesus's clothing would suffice. Uh, some have argued that the woman saw Jesus as some portal of magical power, you know, which could be tapped into by, by contact. But I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. Um, she may have concluded that Jesus's power was personal, okay, personal. She didn't have to address him or be addressed by him. She need, didn't need some sort of incantation or even direct contact with Jesus's person, just the edge of his clothes. She believed that um, this was enough to restore her health. Yeah, no wonder Jesus praises her faith and points out that her healing, uh, points out the healing that her faith effectuates. You know, her faith might not have been very learned, but at its core, it was correct because it was a faith placed in Jesus, right? Even what little she might have known about him. Next question, what obstacle did her, or obstacles did her faith have to overcome? There was a throng surrounding Jesus, and they were already on an important mission. Uh, she possessed no particular social standing to deserve an audience with him. Moreover, it would have been out of place for her to seek open, direct contact with Jesus, a holy man. He might have even have been considered unlawful. So she kind of slunk up right, from behind so that she would not be observed, hoping that she could slink back into the anonymity of the large crowd without anyone knowing of her contact. And regardless of her method, it always strikes me as amazing how resilient this woman is. And she does not give up. Verse 27 says that when she had heard about Jesus, she came to seek healing. Her desperation and drive to be healed from her condition is rather remarkable, if not inspirational. She did not let the crowd be uh, an obstacle that defeated her. Uh, the pace must have been urgent, but she does what it takes to exercise her faith. Her faith is active. She will not be uh, set back. Another obstacle is that when Jesus halts the procession, seeking to ferret out the individual who had drawn healing power from him, she's faced with a, a dilemma. Uh, get exposed trying to hide what she had done or throw herself at Jesus's mercy and publicly own her actions. You know, when Jesus says, who touched me, the exasperated disciples kind of, you know, they go ballistic. They're annoyed at Jesus. What do you mean? Everybody's touching you. Uh, but Jesus ignores them and persistently seeks out the person who touched him uh, in faith. Someone who's able to discern her reaching out to him versus all the other incidental contact that took place. When she sees that Jesus won't be deterred either, in spite of her trembling with fear, she comes forward and tells him the whole truth. I think that took a lot of courage right, and faith on her part. Well, how did this faith change her? Uh, verse 29 
teaches us that immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. I don't know if she experienced an immediate cessation of pain or blood flow or if she felt the rush of exhilaration, but she knew something undeniably powerful had happened to her. Her suffering had ceased. Hallelujah. She had been changed. But she couldn't really jump for joy since it was all done so furtively, right? And maybe this is partially why Jesus calls her out. Not to publicly shame her, but to restore her to religious and societal fellowship. This was an occasion for celebration and thanksgiving. Public praise was warranted. Yet she was still in her social prison of isolation. Hence, Jesus persists uh, so that she could testify to God's power and goodness. You know, notice that Jesus you know, demonstrates no particular concern for the importance of Jairus' social position. It almost seems like a deliberate slight. One might say he prioritizes the bleeding woman because she has no other access or means at this point. And he forces the issue so that she will leave knowing that the one who healed her knows her and cares for her. That it wasn't an impersonal healing. No, it was very personal. Jesus actually calls her daughter because she is as precious to God as Jairus' daughter uh, is uh, to her father. Um, not only did this faith change her, but I think this faith uh, impacted others. How did her faith impact others? Um, although it's not explicitly stated, I believe the woman's story strengthened Jairus' faith. I think this rationale undergirds why Jesus stopped the procession and made the woman speak up. You know, think about it. Else, couldn't the bleeding problem have waited just a little bit longer? Couldn't he have healed her after he healed Jairus? You know, after all, she had suffered for so many years. Um, her condition would persist. Or why not just let the uh, healing, permit the healing to take place as the woman intended, discreetly and anonymously, without public attention? Why, as the disciples and probably Jairus felt, dawdle? to locate the woman and then take the time to air her story. I think the reason is so that this could teach or help Jairus, uh, who would otherwise not have had the opportunity to hear the testimony of the woman. Jesus performed, had performed what no other doctor or healer could do. He staunched the bleeding of the woman who had suffered. Jairus would have heard the number 12. 12 years, the same age as his own little girl. And he heard Jesus call the woman daughter. And so this, these are related healings, right? Um, who knows? Maybe they might not have made it in time to heal the daughter before she died, regardless. I, I think that if Jairus were to receive the sorrowful news of his daughter's death straight up, Maybe he would have just collapsed. Maybe he would have been too devastated. But through this time detour, um, Jairus observed firsthand what an amazing and compassionate healer Jesus truly was. And all the secondhand testimony, thirdhand testimony of what Jesus' healing prowess could do, that was no substitute for Jairus' witnessing it up front. Uh, this is pretty radical 
asking a synagogue ruler to learn faith from an unclean, unnamed, outcast woman. And yet, as we see in Jairus, that's exactly uh, what's happened. Okay, so we took a look at how uh, the woman, the woman's faith and all of its uh, impact. Um, now let's consider how Jairus's faith works for him by asking the same set of questions. I won't reread the questions, but invite you to refresh yourselves of what they are, and then we can apply them in Jairus's um, situation. Uh, what was the condition of his daughter? Uh, Jairus was an important man, important enough to be a ruler, uh, a leader who made physical arrangements and preparations of a synagogue. A synagogue was a local gathering of Jews in a given town, uh, usually comprised of 10 to 12 families, recognizable enough that uh, his name Jairus is mentioned. But all of his wealth uh, and standing and religious fervor could not change the fact that his daughter was sick and dying. Uh, none of his advantages could save her from impending death. Uh, and so he comes promptly and earnestly to plead uh, on his knees, no less, that Jesus might come and heal his daughter and spare her life. Uh, what was the state of Jairus's faith? It seems solid, at least in the beginning. And he comes to Jesus, he is bold enough to ask him, he's humble enough to you know, sit on, a uh, go to his knees, and it looks like things are working out. Jesus is coming to his house. Uh, but I wonder if his faith did not attenuate uh, more and more as time passed. You know, his daughter's condition was dire, every moment mattered. So when Jesus delayed the procession to address the bleeding woman's healing, uh, my guess would be that, uh, that Jairus' faith started to flag. Uh, I mean, if you're Jairus, wouldn't you? Uh, he might have thought to himself, I've gone out of, out of my way to solic solicit Jesus' help. The least he could do uh, was to give uh, me and my daughter full attention. He could speed things up a little bit. But when Jesus quite unnecessarily, in his mind, makes this fatuous demand that the person who touched him make him or herself known, I think Jairus is going, this prophet, this, this rabbi, this healer has gone too far. And then even after identifying who that person is, right, getting her to come out, he encourages her to tell her whole tale of woe and redemption. You know, really? Does Jesus have to do this right now? Uh, it's a touching, literally, story, but valuable seconds are ticking away. And then the worst thing happens, right? Worst case scenario, the dreaded messengers come with the report that his daughter had died. I think Jairus's faith must have buckled at this juncture if it hadn't started to teeter already. Uh, verse 36 shows us that Jesus has to instruct him, don't be afraid, just believe. Uh, this suggests that whatever faith Jairus had was threatened to be drowned out by fear. So Jesus has to encourage him to keep the faith. 
So he has faith, but his faith is in crisis. Well, what obstacles uh, did, his, did his faith have to overcome? We've already mentioned the delay and then hearing the news of his daughter's passing, but I think we can observe a couple more barriers uh, as well. At first, there is kind of conventional wisdom. In verse 35, the messengers see no reason why Jesus should be troubled anymore. Even as a great teacher, there's nothing more Jesus could do. It was over. What was the use? Moreover, this is um, likely the first raising from the dead uh, miracle performed by Jesus. So there was no precedent before. Nothing to kind of uh, look forward to. It was new ground. A betting man might not have followed through with this. But somehow the same faith that impelled Jairus to humbly plead Jesus to come in the first place, strengthened by the woman's uh, testimony, is sufficient to have to, for Jairus to take Jesus to his home. Um, a spark under the right conditions can start a forest fire. Jairus found that spark of faith. Uh, another barrier is at the home, there were these wailers and mourners. Uh, the presence of doubters or naysayers or skeptics can damage an embryonic or strained faith. The mourners were probably numerous. Like even a poor person was expected to have or even hire at least two mourners on hand to help people express grief. Uh, a synagogue ruler would have had many for sure. Uh, these mourners were experienced and professional. They had created uh, quite a ruckus. Uh, they certainly render their expert opinion in response to Jesus' statement that the girl is only asleep, greeting Jesus with derisive laughter, understandably, yeah, although it makes their uh, wailing and crying seem all the more artificial. Um, but they do represent um, the perspective of common sense. Uh, the acquired wisdom of centuries of experience. She's dead. She's not asleep. She's not coming back. She's not going to wake up. What Jesus says seems nonsensical. Yeah, but common sense has no place, right? When Jesus commands differently, when he tells us something to the contrary. How did uh, Jairus's faith change him? Somehow he weathers all these challenges and goes to his daughter, accompanied by his wife, the three disciples, and Jesus. You know, in, in this passage, I noticed for the first time that the, I, I always thought that the whole crowd went to Jairus' house. But, you know, when the messengers came and said, your daughter is dead, right, Jesus ignored those messengers, and he only took James, John, and, P and Peter uh, and Jairus and himself to go to the house. Right? Uh, I'm wondering if um, there was this preclusion of any of these other doubters. Right? There was already doubters there in terms of the mourners, but uh, Jesus is thinking of Jairus' faith, trying to protect his faith. Again, Jairus' faith is just enough to make room for God. He obeys Jesus' lead each time. He keeps his fears at bay. He does not let the mocking uh, people deter him. He keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus. And his faith is effective. Jesus extends his hand to the little girl. As in many instances, Jesus is not afraid to provide the healing touch. To touch a corpse would have uh, made him unclean. 
Basically, Jesus does not care about such things. He speaks to her command to rise. And in obedience, this girl awakens to the utter amazement of those present. Light bursts through the darkness. His daughter is raised. Her life returns. Yeah. Through his mustard seed faith, you know, Jairus experienced a mountain-moving wonder. His precious daughter was brought back from the dead. His faith was rewarded. Trust was preserved. Jairus's patience was so fully satisfied. What a triumph of faith. What a display of God's power. What a change must have occurred in Jairus. I can't imagine him ever, you know, weakening in his faith after going through something so uh, astonishing as this. Uh, his faith journey to me is really interesting from let's say solid in the beginning to very wobbly in between to renewed and even transformed at the end. That's what faith can do for us. That's how faith works, right? Uh, you know, indeed, not everyone is healed. Not every, of course, every death is brought back to life. You know, living faith does not guarantee outcomes, but living faith prepares us, right? It prepares us for any and all outcomes. It makes us ready um, to trust God all the way. Uh, last question, how did uh, his faith impact others? Right? For one thing, Jairus' faith resulted in his daughter's raising. You know, without Jairus' faith, no miracle. Uh, you know, once raised, Jesus uh, tells the people, you know, that feed the girl, right? She must have been hungry after this ordeal. Uh, I think he's also, you know, giving proof that she was not some disembodied spirit, but, you know, flesh and blood, blood able to digest food, right? This is the same daughter that had died and now had been raised, you know, uh, even without fully informed theology, uh, even without... Uh, even when it was shaky at times, and even through the protracted, agonizingly overlong stretches, uh, this faith uh, impacted others. In these days, we're uh, well aware of the transmissibility of infection. Right? Even now, a hot topic is uh, possibly more contagious COVID-19 variants. Um, so it's kind of an, a bad thing, right? Transmission or... or infecting others, but uh, I think there can be good infections too, right? Faith can be transmitted. It can be uh, exemplary. It can spread in a good way. It can help others, support others, inspire others, bless others. Uh, faith works. Let me conclude uh, with a final example. Uh, as it turns out, once more from the sports world. Uh, there was a Sports Illustrated, uh, the magazine article from years back, 2007, written by uh, writer Rick Riley. Uh, I shared this story before, um, but it blessed my heart once more. And some of the brothers who are doing some, some fun games, um, they actually talked about Tony Dungy last night as well. Um, uh, so this story um, originates, the, Rick Riley had written a story about a promising 19-year-old golfer named Corey Lemke. Uh, who had recently perished in a motorcycle wreck. Uh, the story included a part about the grie grieving father, Mark, who was also the author's friend. 
It turns out that after the articles published, a couple of months go by, and then Mark Lemke, the father, gets a call. Uh, Mr. Lemke, the voice asked. Um, it's Tony Dungy. Um, Tony Dungy is a Hall of Fame um, coach. Uh, he's a good Christian right? and a football coach. And um, you'll see how great a guy he is, right? So Lemke, he's uh, middle-aged. He's 51 at the time. He's an ex-jock with a simple life that a motorcycle drove a hole through. And the most he hopes for in a day is that when he gets off uh, his job as a truck driver, uh, he gets to enjoy his wife's sloppy joes and his favorite couch, maybe a frosty beer and a Vikings game to take his mind off his dead son, Corey, for a few hours. So he thinks, naturally thinks this is, uh, the fig he figures a call is a joke. No, uh, it is Tony Dungy, the voice says. I'm just calling to offer my condolences to you and see if there's anything I can do to help you. Uh, this call took place in October. Uh, the Indianapolis Colts were uh, in the teeth of their schedule. It was the most critical season in Coach Dungy's life. Peyton Manning, right, was the quarterback. Um, he had not won anything yet, and they figure the fans think if this they don't win this year, then 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 it's over, right? And Dungy has his own bitter pill to swallow his sorrow. Uh, Dungy had lost his 18-year-old son, James, uh, to suicide two years prior. Lemke knows this, uh, and he understands that Dungy is a similar age, and so they start talking, uh, and the coach tells the dad, you know, keep in touch. Uh, the hardest thing for me is uh, I sit in a truck all day, and all I do is think about him, Lemke tells Dungy one day. You're lucky. You've got so many people around you to get you through the days. Yeah, Dungy says, but that doesn't get you through the nights. Pretty soon, they got this bond going. Dungy has a wife, five kids, uh, the monster job, numerous charities he works with, and a thousand, uh, with a thousand things to do, yet he takes the time to answer every Lemke email gives him his personal cell number, returns every call. They go deep sometimes, Lemke gets hot. And God for taking Corey, Dungy tells him that's normal, but he adds that if they keep their faith, uh, we'll see them again. Playoff season uh, rolls around. Dungy is apologizing for not replying to Lemke uh, right away. Sometimes he can't get on the computer for several days, uh, especially if their defense is not playing well. Who's that nice, right? He apologizes for not replying. Next thing you know, Colts are in the Super Bowl, and Dungy is inviting uh, a man, uh, a Vikings fan, with the rivals no less, to be his guest at the Super Bowl. Uh, Lemke finds a load that needs hauling to Florida and a load that has to come back, and so he drives the 18-wheeler to Miami. The day before the game, they meet personally. They meet in person at the team hotel. They hug, they visit, they pray. The next day, Lemke takes his seat in Dolphin Stadium and watches his new buddy win it all. And this is not only one stranger Dungy has befriended. There's a former high school coach who's in Wisconsin whose son committed suicide. There's a young kid in Indianapolis who lost his mother and brother in a car wreck. Heartbroken people from all over are suddenly getting a hand up from a man 
who himself should be a puddle, but instead is a river of strength. Yet Dunji refuses to talk to the media about these good deeds, which only makes them better. I'm awfully grateful to him, Lemke says. He helped me keep my faith. He taught me that he and I uh, were not alone. Now, both the bleeding woman and Jairus possessed this living faith. They were different in almost every aspect, male, female, ritually pure, impure, holding high religious office, no, a nobody, rich, destitute. Yet their commonality of faith, pure and simple, large and small, immature and seasoned, brought about uh, amazing results, new joy and new life. Yeah, faith really does work. Uh, let's come to God in prayer.